Hey, everybody. I'm Tom Corbett. And I'm Justin St. Louis. And this is Uncommon Deeds. Welcome, everybody, to episode 11 of Uncommon Deeds. Hey, hey. We are inching closer to racing season, which I feel like a lot of people are getting excited about based on stuff we see in our comments and messages we get. And a lot of people have been asking about potentially getting some current drivers for the start of the season. And we do in fact have one coming your way next week. Yeah. I guess technically the season's already started now. They raced at Hickory and they raced at Loudon with ACT and there's been some dirt stuff going on over in New York. And it's also because we in next week's episode, this was said and I just said it kind of implying it. We have talked to Nick sweet who is still currently a a driver and we never i think we said on next week's interview our first current driver yeah it was me and i just kind of hinted at it also and i was like oh wait we gotta stop saying that still current next week that's not he's not the guest next week we didn't do two sweet episodes although i don't think he's raced yet this year so maybe he's not i don't know anyway he's a jack of many trades yeah, yeah. He's busy. He's a busy guy. This week's guy is current. Yes. Man, is he current. He's an he's, it guy right now. The it guy. Yeah, pretty cool. And, um, you know, another guy that we we didn't know uh, before we started recording with him. Um, I had messaged with him, uh, Taylor Moyer. I had messaged with him two or three times. And uh, he watches our Facebook show on, on Thursday nights for Devil's Bowl. Uh, but apart from that, I I've still never met the guy in person, um, other than our than our interview um, with the three of us here. So, just a way down to earth dude, and um, a Vermont boy through and through, and you can hear it in his voice. Um, not just how he sounds, his accent, but the way that he talks and the words that he says. I mean, he's a, he's one of us, and he's he is killing it on the big stage right now um, for Junior Motorsports. Pretty cool. Absolutely, and technically is kind of out of the box that we always talk about. Yeah. But not really at all. Yeah, and like his backstory is certainly not out of the box for for what we do. I mean, um, and you'll hear it here. We don't want to give it all away, but uh, his dad, Daryl, was Steve Miller's crew chief uh, right in the thick of, you know, Steve Miller winning countless races and championships um, in the early nineties. I mean, he just dominated. Um, and then uh, Anthony Warren who races uh, currently at devil's bowl, uh, Jimmy Ryan, all those guys. So, I mean, this is not out of the box by any means until you get to what he does today for a job. I mean, it's, we don't really talk about the NASCAR national series, um, but we have a reason to this week. Yeah. And we went in a lot of interesting places and got a lot of interesting stories just from, you know, how much technology is used 
in his job and right. you know, he is someone with an engineering degree and a lot of times people get pigeonholed when yeah. they see you're in racing and they're not racing fans. But he is a very bright dude. Despite what he says. You know, yeah. He was quick to say he didn't think he's that smart, but he'll tell you he got there on hard work and, and not brains, but I'm thinking that he's probably got some brains too. I would say that's probably yeah. a safe assumption. So but it was fun. It was a good, it was a great talk. And you know what? He's the first guy that had a microphone, <laughs> which I really appreciated, um, which I suppose you're going to have to be prepared like that when you're a national series crew chief. Um, but he sounded like he was in the room with us. It was great. And I'm just going to go ahead and say this now. It's going to be a real disappointment when you get to next week's. Oof. Yeah. Audio quality was rough for the next one, but there's something to look forward to. <laughs> the content was good. Yeah. The content's real good for the one next week um, with that current driver. And we won't, give any more but um yeah a few little audio hiccups Oof. trying to get the uh, was, connection and it was, it was raining that night eh, whatever we'll blame it on that sure yeah <laughs> as for this week without further ado it is time now this one sounds great it does <laughs> it sounds so good it makes up for next week's yeah uh, Justin, why don't you go ahead and introduce today's guest? All right, I'll do that. Our guest today is a Vermont native uh, who may not be the most familiar name to race fans around here because he hasn't spent a whole lot of time around here recently. But let me tell you something. He is good. He just got himself his first grandfather clock at Martinsville Speedway as the crew chief for Josh Berry uh, with his first career win in the NASCAR Xfinity Series. But he's a homegrown talent. Don't uh, don't let me mislead you here. He grew up around uh, asphalt racing a little bit, mostly dirt tracks here in Vermont and uh, New Hampshire and stuff. But uh, we are thrilled to have Taylor Moyer on Uncommon Deeds. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Martinsville. That's awesome. Martinsville, the paperclip. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty neat. It was a long three days with rain and postponement of the race. And we drive back and forth. Um, but it worked out in the end, uh, you know, that's Josh's sixth or seventh race with me. So we did it pretty quick. He's a rookie in the series this year and made the boss very happy. So I'm all, guessing all so. is all is good in the world right now. Yeah. I'm curious before we go back, what is your typical race week look like? Because according, according to like Kevin James on his Netflix show, it looks real oh, yeah. laid back. <laughs> yeah, it's no. Um Pre and post COVID, not laid back. Um, I would say that my team's pretty organized, uh, just because I don't think I'm necessarily brilliant, but I'm pretty good at planning. So if I was to ever just you know fall out in the middle of race week and somebody could pick up my notebook and we could go through it in an organized manner and figure it out. But pre COVID, it would be practice if flying Thursday night, practice on Friday, usually two practices, qualify Saturday morning, um, and then impound the cars and go ahead and race. Post COVID it's usually fly in the morning of, except for the West coast races, uh, immediately pull the cars off the trucks. We have a limited crew. We're only five guys in the garage, which one guy is your tire guy. He's prepping tires. So you got four guys pushing a 3,400 pound car around through tech inspection. You got three shots or you've unlimited shots at tech, but 
two shots until you start getting penalties to get your car through tech inspection. So if you get right through, you might just sit around and wait for a while, or, or if not, you're going to come back to the garage and try to correct some stuff. But once you get through tech, you're impounded until the race, go over some notes, get your head right. And we just, we race, um, no practice, no qualifying, no track prep. And you got to run what you're wrong. And, uh, yeah, even qualifying is off a of mathematical equation now, which with my situation with having a couple of different drivers in my car really hurts us. We have to start from the back a lot, but that is the current situation. And I, I've been in all, when I was in the, I was in the cup series for nine years over at Hendrick as an engineer. And uh, those weekends are a lot longer, but with the current pandemic, it's, it's got everything condensed down to a lot faster situation. In fact, this weekend with the lightning delays during even um, the unload, we had like 45 minutes to try to get our car through tech, get it on the grid, set up the pit box, get our fire suits on, get out there, get computers hooked up, get the driver buckled in the car. It was, it's a, a typical race weekend. a lot of hurry up and wait, you know? I mean, at first it started to sound like you were describing a dirt race where there's you just unload and you go race. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's no, what it's it is a now. lot. That's a lot more strenuous though. <laughs> well, there's, we don't have hot laps. Right. Yeah, that's what we've asked. We've asked for that a time or two. Like, hey, just let us rip like five. Um, we won't change anything. Let's just make sure stuff's not falling off the car. But no, it's actually worked. Our first race, COVID, was Darlington. First race back. And they did a little bit of a modified caution. They did a caution where you couldn't lose any spots on pit road. Um, you were allowed to like lift the hood. It was uh, the pace car went like 35 miles an hour around Darlington. As long as you didn't get lapped by the pace car, you wouldn't lose your spot. Uh, you could... I think there were three of them or something. But after that, they were like, hey, I guess your simulation programs are good enough and your notes are good enough that we're just going to pull them off the truck and let's go. Night before the race, are you trying to turn off the brain away from racing, like sitting down trying to watch some Golden Girls or something? Or are you just fully, for that weekend, that's all you think about? So I go pretty darn hard. I actually... The only way I can turn my brain off of racing is to go to my farm and work, just do manual labor, build fence, chase my cows around, act like I know what I'm doing. So I have a farm and I have the racing and uh, I have a great girlfriend and dog and, but we might go hike. We spend a lot of time at the farm where I can just do trivial tasks that require my attention and I can turn my brain off because I'm not good at turning the ticker off. But the night before the race, yeah, it really depends on, you know, we fly out at all types of crazy hours, so we don't have to stay in hotels for, uh, you know, safety reasons now. But, yeah, it could be anything. Yeah, I I, I do think about racing a lot. I can't, it's hard to get away from that, especially down here where, you know, even when, you know, we've got Millbridge, a little short dirt track Millbridge now, mm-hmm. and micro sprints are picking up, and all my buddies are running them, and the owner's son's got a outlaw cart, and there's cars over there. You just, there's a, there's a race shop on every corner around here so you're not going to get away from it unless you really try hard milbridge sucks you in too it's a neat little place and it, like you can't drive by it you have to stop and look at it we were, i was just having that discussion with somebody how it's like uh i mean there's no the talent level out there right now is ridiculous they had 29 cars for the non-wing show last wednesday night hmm. and there's not they had some NASCAR cup series guys and Xfinity guys try to jump in for their first time. I won't name any names and they couldn't make the feature. And I mean, you you can't practice the, the, the talent is so stacked out there and you got to run the high side and you're going to run fast. And if you screw it up, you're going to climb the wall and water up. It's a fun place. So we'll, we'll get back into the current stuff. Sure. Uh, in a little bit, but, uh, 
we always ask, how'd you get involved? How'd you get started? So I guess at a young age, like my first memory in racing, and I think uh, Statue of Limitations imply, uh, you know, applies here. I remember being in the back of Steve Miller's tow truck, race hauling truck, laying down under the guy's feet so they could sneak me in the pits because I was going with my dad and I probably three or four. Um, and then having to stay in the trailer for most of it and not really be able to come out. I don't know how I got along, but I I really remember that. I remember somebody got, it was, I was at, that was at Thunder Road. I remember somebody got thrown out for soaking tires and there was a fight with the officials in the pits. Um, that's really my first memory, but my dad, we we farmed full time in Shoreham, um, apples and then beef cattle. And, uh, he got out of it Or, or, you know, I don't, I think Steve, I think Steve races a little bit now or something, but that was kind of his heyday and they all went on to do other things. And then my best friend raced a go-kart at devil's bowl when they had their go-kart track going, Anthony Warren. Yes, sir. And I think in seventh or eighth grade, he's a year older than me. And, and um, you know, we're super close. Our little brothers are best friends and uh, might as well be my brother. His dad bought a sprint car, a micro sprint and uh Canaan. We would run Canaan and Bear Ridge and um, which are both quarter mile, I think, or three eighths mile. Yeah quarter mile uh, yeah yeah so then i remember like jimmy ryan and the ryan family who i'm close to out of shoreham they were running that stuff on saturday nights but there wasn't micros at the bowl yet so i would just go there to watch or i say help right you're just standing in the pits maybe passing a tool but i'm like yeah. 12 11 not really know what i'm doing just want to be the cool kid but yeah we would go anth would go run we were in canaan and bear ridge and i just remember even at that age, he was pretty much a trophy or steering wheel driver. We'd either win or be stomping body panels back straight. And how we shot after the <laughs> nothing has changed. Nothing yeah, has yeah. Changed. So that was it. I I do remember we were, you know, I played sports. Went to Middlebury, played sports, and that was cool. But I thought I always thought it was real cool. My mom would write me a note to get out of class early, and then how he would his dad would pull through the circle with the trailer, and me and Anthony would get to leave school when everybody's in the cafeteria oh, and they could see. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So then. I also through Middlebury got, I was always in um, the career center taking um, pre-engineering classes. Um, We had a farm, we had four wheelers, dirt bikes, snowmobiles, tractors, pile of junk. You could weld up all the time. So I was always big into riding four wheelers all night and building big mud trucks and stuff. And I kind of figured out or was pushed the direction that, you know, I could make racing my career, but be on the engineering side too. And I learned to use CAD real well, um, probably about, ninth grade all the way through high school and um yeah i found unc charlotte which had like a motorsports engineering program which is a little bit more geared towards it and i went and toured unc charlotte and virginia tech and clemson georgia tech and i got into all of them which was awesome but i just remember being like i'm gonna have to pay for college so i'm gonna have to work well i might as well work on race cars while i'm in college versus like going to virginia tech um as the rest of my family did and then trying to get into racing and i I had heard that it was, there was, you know, getting into racing professionally was about as, as much as who, you know, not what, you know. So the day after I graduated high school, my parents were moving to Georgia. They had built a house down there and sold our farm in Shoreham. And I packed my truck and drove to Charlotte, went to freshman orientation, flew to Colorado for the summer to work on a ranch and then flew back. And I've never left, uh, never went home for summers. Or I, my parents weren't in Vermont anymore. And I, like I said, I've I'd never worked, never turned a wrench on an asphalt car. I don't really think in my adult life, I ever went to a asphalt track, you know, as a crew member, I went to Pocono once with my dad. 
I just knew that I wanted to think of ideas to make cars go faster and try to implement them. So uh, how, do, how old a guy are you? I'm only 30. I just turned 33 in January. Okay. So this isn't that long ago. No, I graduated high school in 06. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So UNC Charlotte has a nice, um, they actually have a really nice motorsport shop and I didn't really know how to get involved, but they, at the time, and they might still, they had a legends car team that two, two car legends car team that ran over at Charlotte motor speedway. And I went in there and I just couldn't believe the condition the cars were in. They were terrible. Kids might be smart, but they didn't know how to build race cars. So I tore them both down, read it all the sheet metal. I was like, this is junk. And somebody saw me the first night and uh, he was on a pro cup team. There was a series called Hooters pro cup, which was kind of like between a, it's like what a can and East car is now, or that's not even there anymore. That's Arca now, but it's like a step between, I don't know. It was just a touring. It's kind of like, like, it was like one of those cars, but sort of with a late model body on it. Yeah. It was like a late model body on almost like an Xfinity or Bush chassis, but it was every cup team had, um, you know, had like Joey Logano was there. Trevor Bain was there. Butler brothers, every cup team had a, um, that was the developmental series. And I found a local guy or they found me, they saw me fabricating. Um, they needed a fabricator. They needed somebody that could also turn some wrenches. And then it was athletic enough to do, pit stops because they we had live pit stops and at the time races were fully televised on speed channel and it was mm-hmm. like a 14 race series on the east coast and it was really cool because it was a lot of cup veterans mechanics that they wanted to cut down from 36 to 14 and be pretty local but still wanted to race and then it was a bunch of young guys like me that didn't know their elbow from a torque wrench and i learned so much i was actually just texting with the guy that gave me a shot mike herman jr he's a spotter now Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. So sure. Mike, Mike Herman Jr. Gave me the shot. Um, we would ride to the track. I'd ride in the sleeper behind his dad who drove the hauler pops. That old man could drive across the country and never pee. It was amazing. Um, I got to go to Jennerstown and Lakeland and all Myrtle beach, all these iconic places. And man, from there I got noticed a uh, weird story. There's a team in Mooresville that built a bunch of one-off road course cars, road course stock cars for a Prince in Dubai. Needed fabricators that had passports that we could go over there. We built forty-eight of those things, and uh, that one side deal. Yeah, he the the Prince or Eris or whatever. We built forty race cars, four four two seaters, and four show cars. We put them in shipping containers with uh, two rear end housings and a spare fully machined uh, LS one fuel injected motor, a couple bolt on body panels. And they'd ship them over on barges. And if you were a billionaire, it was like a billionaire's go-kart league for a couple million bucks. You just, here's your white stock car and you can paint it however you want. And you can run a, I think it was an eight race season against um, some ex Formula One drivers. And I think that series lasted four races before they had wrecked every single race car we had built. And uh, I don't know what happened to it, but it was called speed car series. There was some, there was some videos on YouTube floating around somewhere. That is what we're going to do immediately after this. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was, it was a good, it was a good experience. There was Did like, you go over and, and watch any of them. No. So what stunk was I started. They built. We built them in batches of eight, and after the first eight, the the whole shop went over there, and I wasn't working there yet. Um, and when they got back, one of the guys actually left and went to Hendrick to fabricate. And then uh, my boss, I had some friends working there. They were like, "Hey, this kid's pretty good." So. I built, you know, number nine through 40 with those guys. And um, rather than us go back over, they actually came over here and we did some more testing over here, like VIR and stuff. It was just logistically so hard for us to get over there um, and do all the testing and have the tools we needed to 
like kind of tweak stuff at the test to do a little R and D. I remember our biggest issue was trying to keep like sand out of the airbox on these stock cars. Um, so they came over VIR. I remember the X4 and the one drivers, I think it was like Yana Lacey and Johnny Herbert. I was still pretty green. Um, but we got them as bare chassis and we did everything from wire them to, you know, they had met, they had metal steel sides on them and a composite nose greenhouse and tail hung all the suspension and we did it all. So it was a great experience for me to learn the car from absolutely nose to tail. Um, and then we had an arc, like we, I think Bob, the guy's name was Bob Shack racing. He, he was a great guy. I was in college. So if the team like left out on a Thursday to drive to St. Louis to run gateway, he would buy me a plane ticket. So when I got out of college, the class on Friday night, I'd fly there and meet the team and then ride back. Um, so we had an ARCA team as well. We we're kind of doing it all. And <clears throat> after the speed car series thing kind of imploded, I've met somebody that worked at Hendrick Motorsports at my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. And they got me into an open pit crew tryout and I made it as a tire changer at Hendrick uh, while I was in school. And then I got a job part-time there as well in the parts department. And then I worked my way from parts department to into the body and chassis shop uh, where I was hired full-time out of college as a chassis shop engineer. And I was a test engineer for um, Dale Jr. and Jimmy um, in 2014, kind of a junior engineer a little bit, learning the race engineering side of things. Uh, then I was with Casey Kane, 15, 16, 17, William Byron, 18. And then in 19, um, I was moved to junior motorsports to crew chief. So that's the short version. Well, that's just meteoric, like from high school in 06 to where you are now. I mean, that's a very short time period as far as I am thinking. And to do all of that in that very short amount of time, do you look back every now and then be like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like that must make your head spin a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does. It's, it's a crazy environment down here and you don't realize it and you get used to it. But like every one of my college roommates, well, Cliff Daniels, the crew chief on the 48 car, Corey Donnelly is the, like the head data guy at junior motorsports, Chris White Knight's a Xfinity champion. I think he's moved back to Pennsylvania now, but he won the Xfinity championship with Daniel Suarez, um, at Gibbs. He worked there. Uh, I came up, it was the same way at Middlebury. Actually, I came up, like came up, my class came up with a bunch of smart kids. And then when I was in college, I was with all these guys who were just from all over the U S that were just racing diehards. And all of us are pretty much, you know, we all work in racing in some capacity now, um, a pretty high level. So I think when you surround yourself with people like that, you don't even realize it's happening. It's just, you're kind of, you're, comp- I'm a racer. I'm competitive. I, you know, if, if, this roommate did this, then I'm going to, I want to be better than him and do this. And my path was a little unconventional in that I had to work the whole time through college, but I think that only helped me. Um, I mean, there was a time that, you know, I'd roll out on a Thursday night. I didn't, wouldn't schedule Friday classes or roll out on Thursday night. I'd pit the truck race. I'd pit the Xfinity race. I picked some pit, pitted some back marker cup cars, but then, you know, try to get enough sleep to go back to class on Monday and you got to you know, good paycheck in your pocket from pitting race cars all weekend. And then I'm, I would drive between class and Hendrick. They weren't far apart. UNC Charlotte's about five miles from Hendrick. So whenever I wasn't in class, I would just drive up to Hendrick and work and you just, you just keep working hard and people will notice. I think, I think that's the moral of that story. I, I wanted to be a crew chief by the time I was 30 and I worked hard to move myself through the, through Hendrick Motorsports to get as much experience as I could get to, you know, be a well-rounded 
person, hopefully when I got the shot or if I got the shot to be a crew chief, because for every guy like me, there's probably 10 guys more talented that just don't get a shot because of, for whatever reason, so I can make the most of it. But yeah, I guess it happened pretty quick. You don't have time to think about that stuff though. It's, it's just like in Hardwick, but with logging, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. What did, uh, what did your parents do? Cause it seems like you were instilled with a pretty good work ethic. I know you mentioned the farm with your dad. We're farmers. My whole family's farmers and we're damn proud of mom it. Mom too. Yep. Um, so no mom's an accountant, but my mom's from a large farm in New Jersey that my family still owns. It's a produce farm, apples, peaches, pumpkins, battle view orchards. It's founded in 1905 by my great grandpa, who's first ever national president of FFA. And my dad's side's a dairy farm in Virginia. It's the oldest dairy farm in the state of Virginia, Okmulgee Dairy. That farm's 1895, and it's on its fifth generation. It supports five families. Um, and I was, and my parents kind of both, they, everybody goes to Virginia Tech. Dad was dairy science. Mom was ag business. And they ran away together to Vermont. Um, they used Vermont Land Trust to buy uh, apple orchard over on Witherall Road on the east side of Shoreham. We looked at the lake. Did that to fourth grade, and we had another farm over on Buttoff Road, which is really what I kind of call home, and we transitioned to beef cattle. And, yeah, I mean, I always worked on our farm, but I remember at 14 years old being woken up my birthday to go, congratulations, you're now officially employed down the road milking cows um, for the neighbor. And I did that every day before school, mainly so I could pay for my four-wheeler that I beat through the woods, but it wasn't an option, and I think that's – you don't realize what – I, I never realized what, uh, what a special place Shore in Vermont was until I moved away. And um, heck, all my buddies were like that. They still are. Anthony, Travis Whittemore, who's one of Anthony's crew guys and helpers. And, you know, we're thick as thieves. And I remember mowing lawns with Anthony's dad, Howard Warren Lawn Care. We would mow lawns between double sessions of football. And we would take turns sleeping on the way back to football. And then getting enduro cars ready after film to go run at the bowl on like Sunday night. And having our dads drag the enduro cars down to the bowl leaving like football films. So I, I, I was just raised with people like that. So you don't, doesn't seem odd to me, but yeah, my parents, they always expected a lot out of me. God's rules. If you're going to do it, do it right. So they pushed me hard. Um, but I appreciate every, every bit of it, you know, I'd say it panned out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, like you said, you don't have a choice. Yeah. I mean, we didn't, it's not like I felt like I was, I mean, it was great, but the rule was if you want to buy, if you want to put dual exhaust in your truck, they're 500 bucks, you get paid 550 an hour, do the math, figure it out, work enough hours, put them on there. We don't care, you know? So it was, it was a great childhood. I had, we had a, I had a thousand acres to run around on and welder in a shop and do what you want. Don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt anybody else. Now, were you at all, that pressured isn't the right word, but expected maybe to go down that farming road or were they fully supportive with you chasing whatever passion you had? Uh, they were fully supportive to chase any passion I had. Um, I I was never pressured at all. And I, it's, it's funny. I loved my farm growing up and I showed cows pretty big through 4-H and um, I was, wasn't in FFA, but through 4-H uh, from the time I was like seven till right about maybe junior year of high school where I was playing lacrosse and football and I didn't really know what I was going to do with showing cows, but there wasn't any pressure. It was just really do, do whatever makes you happy. And that's the way they are now. Um, and I, I didn't have much desire. You know, I never, I don't think I ever voiced my opinion of, Hey, you need to keep this farm so I can go to college and come back and run it. My dad had actually taken a second job 
actually he worked for Steve Miller at Otto Creek for like a year when he got, we didn't get out. He got out of farming full time. We weren't doing it to keep the lights on, but we still had a pretty big herd of cows. And then he got hired by New England Woodcraft um, and was selling furniture. And that's what he does now. He owns his own um, furniture business, but about moving from Shoreham to Vermont to Charlotte, North Carolina is quite the culture shock. Yes. And uh, it took me about six months and I missed cows and, you know, peepers at the Creek so bad that I started saving money. And then 2018, I had saved up enough money to buy, you know, a good bit of land out East of Charlotte. Uh, so I live, I have two, this is a, this is an apartment up near the race shop because my girlfriend and I both work at junior motorsports, but we have the farm down there too, which is kind of our, our free place. So yeah, got the farm and it's my therapy. They're peeping tonight. I can hear them out the window. <laughs> I'm jealous. Yeah. So, uh, how old were you when your dad s- stopped working for Steve Miller? I mean, was there a gap there between him working on flying tigers and late models and then you working on, you know, micro sprints and, and modifieds? Yeah, there had to be a gap. Oh, Cause I want to say, like, I barely old enough to remember it. My mom posted a great picture on Facebook after the win of me. Like I remember the, I remember there was a car show at G stones and I'm standing in front of like the one car of Steve's that wasn't orange. It was red and white. But man, I, I want to say there's probably a five, six, seven year gap because I don't I really don't remember much of Steve racing. I, I have that faint memory of sneaking snuck into the pits, Al's French fries, a fight, the hill at Thunder Road. Um, and then dad still got his old jackets and through high school, I used to cut the sleeves off all the old Steve racing T-shirts and wear them around like a little redneck kid. But I don't really remember much of that. My first like real memories of racing was, you know, Anthony Warren got a a King chassis micro sprint and us trying to figure it out and how he's, how he shot. I had the, the Stevie Smith sprint car book, the Bible of sprint car racing yeah. out, you know, cutting like a two inch ride height block and a two and a half and a three. So we could set to try to set this thing up. It's, it's too bad that you don't remember the Steve Miller years because man, they won a lot of races. So that's, races. that's what yeah. the last time I went home with my parents, well, I dug out the photo albums. I didn't give them an option. And, um, yeah, we pulled them out. My dad's still got all the, he's got all the pictures, you know, it's all the blue jeans and work boots and t-shirts that are way too tight for men in the late eighties. And <laughs> it, the, I think those cars are like the sexiest race cars too. that, that era of race cars all the way to the cup series and whatever, just late models, old super late models, modifieds, whatever. But I always heard Steve was, you know, a wheel man. Um, yeah, I knew he ran flying tigers and he moved up, but it's too young. You were there. You just maybe don't remember it. <laughs> yeah. I, I was probably at the house with mom and dad was yeah, there. Yeah. So, so, um, take us through Anthony, Anthony Warren is such a cool guy and he is exactly like what you said. He either brings back a trophy or the steering wheel and there's no in between. No. Um, you know, he, <laughs> he and his cousin, Anthony Ryan had an amazing battle for a win last year and he went through like the infield parking lot to, to slide job him out of the lead on the last corner. It was amazing, but I'm guessing that you guys spent a lot of time putting cars back together. Yeah. So I think Howie was smart enough to not let me touch too many parts of the race car that like, you know, could critically injure Anthony or, you know, blow the motor. So, you know, sprint cars are Zeus clips and flat panels pretty much. I just do remember doing a lot of that. Um, I'll never forget that first King chassis he bought the whole, every body panel was polished aluminum. We like take it to the car show in Rutland 
And then right out of the box, Anthony was fast. I remember one kid being over at Canaan that year that was maybe a little quicker, just had some more experience, but we didn't really know what we're doing. But I just remember he ripped. Uh, It was just a spectacle to watch. You know, he might make a mistake in the heat race and start him at the back and then he'd fly. And it was like, we'd either win (laughs) or we'd be trying to figure out how to get it in the hauler or the, you know, the trailer. Um, It was fun to watch. And it was fun too because we traveled like a little you know traveling circus with with jimmy ryan and clay you know clay's still like a grandpa to me yeah. they didn't live far from where my farm was at over there on ritual dam road right the clay's got the cool old big shop and he at that time he had jimmy's car in there maybe another yeah. you know backup car you just get to sit around and hear those stories and travel with those guys you know pulling the truck stops and I was just a little kid. I didn't really do much, but you're just soaking it all in. But I think if, if for nothing else, it just fueled that fire to want to be able to do it more snowmobiles, four wheelers, anything with handlebars. I will say this, this has been a long debate. I think Anthony's probably the best steering wheel driver out of my little group of friends, Travis Whittemore. I don't know if you know, Travis, he works with Ant's car, big guy. He's probably the fastest I've seen with handlebars. And I was just trying to hold on, but the three of us, rode and broke a lot of stuff and uh we rode four wheelers and snowmobiles the same way we ant drives a race car um luckily travis is a machinist and i was in cad classes and we could figure out how to machine stuff and put it back together and it's what boyhood dreams are made of did you have any desire to drive i really never did i never did Uh, i don't know why um i thought the fun part was trying to figure out how to make it go faster and I, I think when that's the fun part to you, having drivers like Josh Barry or Anthony Warren, that makes it all the much better because that guy's not going to lay down. He's going to drive it as absolute fast it'll go, and he's not scared of it. So maybe that's why Anthony and I are such good friends. But uh, Josh is pretty much a similar driver this year. I mean, I'm sure people have seen the Atlanta highlight when we oh, yeah. launched our car eight feet in the air off the grass. We were so fast at Atlanta, and we could not catch a break, and we had driven from the back of the field like four times got spun by the you know another car and took a drift to the grass so yeah i don't i don't once in a while it would probably maybe be fun to go like test a micro sprint or something but i love going to the track and watching my friends do it i've got a i got a good friend up here ty that owns a micro sprint and chase briscoe drives it and dylan welch and uh i think it's the same way for him it's it's just fun to know you have the knowledge and the ability to take what people say converted into speed and that's not a skill a lot of people have interesting you really kind of sound like a renaissance man in the sense of half your story so far sound like my childhood in hardwick talking about you know mud trucks and throwing exhausts on in your miller racing cut sleeve t-shirt and then you have the engineering degree over here in cad and a lot of people when you say racing who if they don't pay attention probably picture that first half that uh that rednecky yeah. vibe especially around here so around, yeah. um if you saw pictures of me from high school and i played all helmet sports right long i always had to flow out from beneath my football helmet my lacrosse helmet hockey helmet uh ran around in carhartts and flannel right like i was it was it was I was an Addison County farm kid. You've got uh, the you've got the accent. You've got the Addison County accent. Yeah. I was an Addison County farm kid. And I remember I kind of rocked the flow and always wear a ball cap. And I was a fabricator. You know, we grind metal all day. You're going to get not greasy, but dirty. And I remember when I got, when I was given the position at Hendrick Motorsports as an engineer, I had to wear a button down 
you know, full collared sleeve shirt, nice dress shirt says Hendrick Motorsports. And it wasn't, I don't, it was no official rule, but Mr. Hendrick certainly likes us to look good and didn't want, I thought, I thought a ball cap with that shirt looked, um, you know, a little hokey. So I got my haircut shorter, not longer. And um, I think at that point I realized like, I don't have to, I can just be myself. I can be Taylor, but you know, somebody's paying me good money to, for the knowledge in my head, but also to represent their brand and their image. And at that point, if I want to continue, you know, and be put in the limelight, which is, I, you know, I enjoy being put in high pressure situations for sure. Um, I need to do what's asked of me or what's going to represent those companies, you know, to a, to a degree, as long as I agree with it. Um, if, but if they're my boss and they ask me to look presentable, um, I have no problem, you know, cleaning up a little bit. So, yeah, it's funny you say that because until about sophomore year in college, I was still long hair, ball cap, whatever. I mean, now I go to my farm, I'm still cut off shorts or blue jeans and boots. But when they, you know, if they need you to go to a sponsorship event, those people are going to spend their hard earned money so you can go do what you love. So the least I can do is, is dress up and the engineering side of things. For anybody that thinks you have to be smart to be an engineer, I'm living proof. You don't, you just have to have a hard work ethic. I felt like engineering school and college was just a test of um, how hard of a worker you are. Will you, are, are you willing to put in the hours to memorize the stuff in the books, to spit it back out on a piece of paper for a professor, to get a piece of paper, to go work, you know, for a race team if they want you. Because once you get on a race team, you use a little bit of that information, but it's more about how fast can you learn new information. So you just got to work hard at it. You don't have to, anybody can do it. You don't have to have any natural gift. Do you get to Hendrick Motorsports without that piece of paper? Um, the path isn't as easy. Um, I can, I can speak personally. When I look at a stack of resumes, I could care less. Let me say it this way. I'll take a 3.0 kid out of college with an engineering degree that worked full-time through college and has some good short track racing experience and has more than formula SAE that spends his time volunteering with some, you know, volunteering with some guys at devil's bowl or Winchester speedway or wherever. I'll take that kid who's well-rounded over the 4.0 kid. Who's never been to a racetrack hands down any day, every time the team I assembled or got to assemble. It's a bunch of blue collar kids like me are just hardcore racers. And that's what you got to have because when it rains at Martinsville and you are pulling pit boxes or in toolboxes, so there's four of you pulling pit boxes and toolboxes in the pouring down rain at two in the morning and you get home at four, you better love racing and you better be a hard worker and the, your engineering degree is not worth much. Um, you know, you better, you better love the guy you're working with and you better like some team atmosphere because you're going to do it for them before you're going to do it for yourself. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I had to say about that. It, Getting an engineering degree is not, it's great because you can go do a lot of things with it and it probably will help you get a job, especially with the way that the new cup car is going to be. Um, but to me, overall being, having racing experience and being well-rounded is, is what people want. If, when you're asked to come up with new creative ideas, your engineering degree isn't worth as much if you don't have the experience to fall back on to, to think of those ideas. You know, if you didn't know a super modified at one time had three tires on the left and one on the right and the engine hanging on the outside of that. And the wing changed angles as he left the throttle. Like how are you going to come up with new ideas? So in 2021, if you're trying to make a race car fast, how much of your work is done 
on a computer screen as opposed to underneath a car? Uh, I'm going to say 50-50 because the speed in the car is still there when you unload it off the truck. You can't build a bad car and then just adjust your suspension in my mind. In NASCAR, you can't build a bad car and then just adjust your suspension to make it go faster. What you can do is build a really good car and then adjust your suspension and make it terrible. So <laughs> there's a lot of work still done in the fab shop, aerodynamics, underbody, and then there's still a lot of work done on the computer, especially now with COVID rules. We have you know simulation programs where we can sit there and make suspension adjustments and run laps with our race car. That is our practice. Um, and then that lets us, lets us predict our, our travels, our splitter contact, our spoiler angle, our spring engagement. So having, you know, I have two engineers on my team and that's, you know, I have one guy that that is his job. He brings me a bunch of options. He thinks of creative ideas, brings me a bunch of options for suspension geometries. And we look at all the, all the squiggly lines and pie or the characteristics of the car. Like this is how the body attitude is for this suspension, you know, set up and, this is what the spoiler does here. This is what the splitter does here off the corner. And we make our best guess and prediction. And, and then we use all our other tools to make, you know, hopefully that's replicated on the car as well as I have like a team of a car chief and mechanics that are out there physically doing the things on the car um, and doing all the tweaks in there. And uh, you know, they, they set the car up on the plate and they're doing their aerodynamic adjustments and, you know, addressing all the other stuff. So it's still, it's still 50, 50. There's, it's very hard to take a poorly built race car off of the truck and make it faster with suspension, but it's really easy to take a well-built race car and make it junk. If you miss your travels and you smash your splitter on the track or something. So you got to know what you're doing a little bit, especially seems, with no practice. It seems to me that, I mean, those computer programs are incredibly detailed, I'm sure. Oh yeah. But it seems to me that that's probably a cheaper route than, testing and practice and burning tires off it and paying for extra hotels and all that stuff. Is that, is that accurate or no? Yeah, I would think so. And on the computer side, there's kind of two, there's a couple things, but there's an actual driver simulator that the manufacturers own. Everybody has one now and that's where the driver can go. They're in like the center section of a race car. They're buckled in, there's airbags and their belts will pull. Some of them even wear helmets. Um, they wear gloves. It's a full fuselage of the race car. Everything moves. Um, they've got screens all around them and we call that the simulator. It's a little confusing. That's the simulator, the DIL. And then us as a race team has a program called simulation, which is a, we measure the whole car with a robotic arm to the, you know, 0.001. All these points are put in the race car or put in our simulation program. All the parts are measured the same way. And we assemble the race car in the computer. We match it to that measurement of the race car. And we can take that we can take that program and put it into the simulator and the driver can physically drive all of our setups in there and we can test some things Um, with the manufacturer owning that it's probably certainly cheaper for the teams. Um, You know, if we had to build one of those things, good gosh, I don't know, but it's, it's not a perfect science that it's only as good as the tire data really. And with limited practice nowadays, when NASCAR throws new sets of tires at us, which they're, they're known to do, you know, you might, there's been some races where you just got to go with what, you know, um, Charlotte Roval last year, we raced in six inches of rain mm-hmm. and it was fun because the playing field was leveled because nobody had ever run in that much rain. And you just had to go with what, you know, is how fast you can learn it on the fly in the rain at the racetrack. So 
So when you're at the Charlotte Roval and it's still a fairly new layout and there's six inches of rain, do you just say, uh, you guys just, you know, we're just going to do this. We leaned. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of, <laughs> like, we, came, we, we came together to group as a group and um, my engineer worked for Penske for a while and with Austin Sindrick specifically and some of, you know, Brad and some of those guys and he has a lot more road racing knowledge than I do. And we all pooled our heads and we're like, and then, you know, my car chief, Danny Earnhardt Jr. Um, he would be the cousin of Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, he, anybody got any good ideas? Um, should we unhook the sway bar? Should we take all the control out of the rear shocks? Like, uh, you know, what do you think is going to work? Is it going to keep raining or is it going to dry off? And then if we unadjust the car, we'll go a bunch of laps down. And our plan was good. That last year it was Daniel Hemrick driving and, just gave him a solid piece. I think we're the only car not to go off track and we finished second, second in the race. Yeah. It was make it so he can stop and steer and see, you know, hook the, hook the windshield wiper up. Can we get enough water off the windshield so he can see in the first place? Um, but it was, I, it was really fun because it was so different and you couldn't be out moneyed by any other teams because it was a right then and there, everybody has to put their heads together and, throw their best shot at it. Hopefully the driver's on the same page and see what happens. And it, it worked out pretty well for us. I'm curious for you in terms of setting up cars, when you have multiple drivers from, <laughs> you know, week to week, how does that go? Cause we were, you know, we've been talking to drivers for a couple months here and, you know, we were just talking to Russ Ingerson last week and he said, he would set up this car and it was the fastest thing ever. And then his brother would get in it and could not drive it and said, refuse to drive it. I've seen a little of that. Um, my first season I had nine drivers and I never had one back to back. And at that point we were doing, we were doing good just to get interiors changed out. You know, I had Ryan priest who's 209 pounds to Zane Smith. Who's 117 ring and wet. Um, I got guys with Northern act. I got Ryan Truex with a, New Jersey accent to Dale Jr. You know, I mean, it was everything. So to Miguel Paluto. <laughs> yeah. So we were, we were just going, I know I need to learn Portuguese. I would understand yeah. some more. Um, but in that, that year we were, we would have a pretty good baseline setup for intermediate short track road course speedway. And we had practice. So there might be a little tweak, a, a shock, you know, an attitude. Does this guy like soft bump stops or does he like stiff bump stops? Last year was a little more, tuned in I, I had jeb burton and daniel hemrick and then dale for one and um luckily dale i'm sorry luckily luckily all three were pretty similar and then this year at least i have josh for like the first half and then sam mayer for the second with miguel thrown in a couple times so I, i'm just treating this like this is josh's season right now i don't i haven't thought about sam yet um on the setup side of things but josh came to us and He's super humble. I mean, the kid is lightning in a late model and uh, he doesn't demand anything. Um, he saw that we ran pretty good last year at Martinsville. We were fourth. We talked, we went to the simulator. We tried a couple of ideas. He gave us an idea that he said really made his late model a lot more comfortable when he won the big race last year. And we incorporated some of that in. Um, we also knew where our car's weaknesses were from last year. And, and, and we just, Andrew, my engineer and myself came up with, some ideas and hey it worked out so uh so hold on though so when you're with well this is two weeks ago by the time this airs but when you won at martinsville last weekend there's a little bit of late model setup in that xfinity car 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, I rebounds, rebound, compressions, compression. Yeah. You know, it's the race cars. Are, at the end of the day, all race cars are four tires just touching a racing, racing surface. I think where people go wrong is they overcomplicate these things so bad they can't understand what's going on with the car. I mean, that's when I fall apart as a crew chief. If I've got the thing so complicated that I can't be like, oh, yeah, that's probably why that's happened. And I get you get you get lost in the weeds. So um, what Josh said his late model used on a certain part wasn't wasn't out of bounds for what we could you know give to him in the Xfinity car. So we tried it in that simulator and he's like, yeah, that's better. And I was like, OK, well, I think we should put it with this thing I had think thought of. And Andrew had thought of this because what, what we fought last year and car was good we we actually it was funny to me that we we ended that race we won that race with our track bar in the exact same position as we started the race last year you know basically backed out our adjustments and freed up as we went and and josh, i felt like josh was class of the field well it was pretty cool to see a short track guy through and through uh win that race win any win any xfinity race but to win there at martinsville um that must have felt you know, pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, it, it was, it was pretty awesome. I'm not going to lie. I, uh, I know how special that place is to the Earnhardt family. I was a test engineer on Dale's car in 2014 when he won there. So I wasn't like on the team, but I was around the team a lot. We could still had open testing. And I knew from then how special it was to Dale. And, um, yeah, man, it was, I, I, I was telling somebody last night, I, when he came off of four, and I knew he was going to win. There's nothing between him and the, you know, start finish line. And we we're pitted down in one. So he's coming right at me. I, I had my hand on my button to speak. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to be cool and calm and collected. And when I touched the button, I short circuited and just yelled like a sixth grade girl, you know, screaming at Josh, how happy I was. I was not the normal, cool, calm and collected guy, but I don't know. Yeah. Was, you thought that out. And then totally. I literally know, thought, like, oh, they always play this part on TV. So yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was like, I just be cool here. And I couldn't do it. Didn't have the ability. What would you, <clears throat> I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's your biggest win in your career, but um, maybe I'm wrong. What what would you have classified as your biggest win before that? No, that's my biggest. Yeah. Um, that would be my first win as a crew chief. And then I won in 17, I won Indy 500, the Indy, not the 500, sorry, the Indy race <laughs> with Casey Kane. That was pretty big. Yeah. yeah. Um. But man, yeah, I, I mean, it's different. That's my first big win as a crew chief, but it's not any better than if I was to come to Vermont this summer and me, Anthony Trav go win one at a dirt track somewhere. That'd be just as special to me just because we get to do it together. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a big win. It, it was It was a big monkey off my back because to get the sport has less and less employees every year. Mm-hmm. Less guys make their living in racing in NASCAR. So to keep progressing, a lot of people have to put their faith in you and put their word behind you. And um, even though I've had a lot of drivers, I've never loved the fact that people can use that as an excuse. You know, they might be like, oh, Taylor's a good crew chief, but yeah, he's got so many drivers, you know, it's not his fault. He doesn't win. I think that's bullshit. I'm paid to win and um, I want to win. So for me to win one and prove to Dale and Kelly and Mr. Hendrick and LW Dale's brother-in-law, Kelly's husband, uh, that they chose the right guy meant a lot to me. Cause I'm very close to all those people care a lot about them because they've helped me through the whole way. So to validate their faith that they put in me m- 
means a ton, you know, more than anything. And to prove to my guys, I had this, I've been able to keep the same crew of guys together. This is Danny Earnhardt. That's his, his first win as a car chief. My first win as a crew chief, my junior engineer. This was his last race with us. He's in the nine cup car. Now that was his first win. You know, somebody let a bunch of knucklehead kid. We're all a very, really young team too. Somebody let a bunch of us uh, get together and play with the race cars. And we're, we're very fortunate to do it. And I was, I was so happy just to do it for all those guys. Our listeners would not be pleased with us if we don't ask what, what the boss man is like. That's what's it like working for Dale. (laughs) What's it like working for Dale? Um, I think I had to answer this question the other night and I said, working for Dale is like coaching the Broncos and once in a, uh, who did I use? John Elway. Uh, Yeah. Sorry. It's like coaching the Broncos and once in a while, John Elway, the team owner wants to, you know, start a quarterback. They, uh, no Dale's he's, he's great. He's, uh, I, I was pretty nervous my first year. They're like, oh, yeah, and you're going to run. You're going to be Dale's crew chief. Oh, God. Um, and we got to know each other. We drove down to Darlington together, just hung out. And uh, he was like, no, you're the crew chief. You crew chief this car. This is your team. I'm just a driver. Treat me like a driver. And we had so much fun. Finished fifth. Throwback weekend. I had skin tight white jeans on and a sweet mustache. And it was, you know, we were the Hellman's throwback car. And and uh, Dale and I developed a friendship that's pretty laid back. Now, I'm not going to say there's not a lot of pressure. You know, Josh Berry is Dale's boy. I mean, he found Josh, and he's putting his faith in Josh. So I certainly felt pressure this year to succeed for those guys. But um, Dale's a blast to be around. He's, uh, he's not a micromanager by any means. You know, he believes that he hired, you know, he hired me to be me, and he lets me be me. And um I don't know. I've heard Mr. Hendricks say that a lot. You know, he, he doesn't want to be the smartest guy in the room. He wants all the people he hired to be the smartest guy in the room. And that makes him smart for hiring them. So I see a lot of that in Dale um, and Dale's sister, Kelly, who runs the company and her husband, LW, who's kind of like a, you know, like a fun uncle to me. Um, they're just great people and they're a great family. And then we have a huge, very tight family atmosphere there. Um, you know, I'm blessed to be part of it, but yeah, working for Dale Jr. Um, he's just another guy. He wears blue jeans and t-shirts a lot. Sometimes hooded sweatshirts. Is he hands-on in the process, or is no, he kind of really. in and out? Because he's obviously out. he's got the podcast and all the media stuff and all yeah. these other ventures he's involved in. Yeah, he he does. I, I I truly believe he does all those other ventures. Um so he can keep letting us do what he loves watching us do, which is race his race cars with his name on the side. And he doesn't try to come in and tell us how to do it. He just keeps digging, you know, grinding, doing all that other stuff, the broadcasting and whatnot. So he, so he can have four full-time race cars. That's what he loves. He loves, he loves the ability to give Josh Berry a chance. You know, my, my 2019, we had, Ryan, you know, had all those guys that can only afford four, five, six races. And that's what he, those are the guys he wants in his car. He doesn't, you know, he wants everybody to get a shot before it was junior motorsports. It was, um, chance two. Yeah. Chance two. That's right. It was chance two. And that's what he did. And that's what he did with Martin Truex. And look at that guy now. Yep. So I think that's what Dale loves. And, um, that's the vibe I get all the time is I'm going to be over here on the sidelines. I, you know, I'm over here if you need me, but we're going to let you do your thing and stand beside you. So. 
he's a he's a great boss to have. I mean, I think the fact that you just got away with saying the word bullshit is a testament to that, and everything that you know that Noah Gragson has been through this year. Um, he's he. It seems like what you said is is probably a hundred percent true that he just lets you do your thing. Yeah, yeah. I I mean. Once you get down and you get intimate with these race teams, all these race teams have a little bit different culture and all those cultures have a little bit different advantages. And I think the advantage to the junior motorsports culture and why we win a pretty fair amount of races is we let people be the people they are and we don't try to change them or mold them into a system. Um, We hire them because they're smart people that want to race and we spend the money on the right things to make our race cars go faster and we get the most out of people. And I think getting the most out of people is, is having them happy at work. And I, I like it when we go into work tomorrow, we have a beer toast to celebrate my win. We will drag a cooler out in the parking lot because of COVID and get six feet apart and we will all have a beer and they'll make me talk and Josh talk and Dale talk. And that's what we'll do. And that's what type of race team we are. So uh, I don't, I, I love, I like Noah He's a friend of mine, and I, I don't have much to say on his situation, but he's a great kid. No, I, I wasn't he, asking I, you to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he, no. <laughs> I think he gets personified a little bit different than than he really is from the media. But, um, yeah, I think Dale Dale handles that situation how Dale wants to handle it. It's his company. so. I'm just having a hard time picturing, you know, a, a Penske engineer or Penske crew chief just acting the way and i'm not saying this by any means in a bad way but you know having a personality yeah (laughs) you know uh (laughs) take that in the most positive way possible please (laughs) the one thing you learn in racing is you never talk junk about anybody because next year you'll be working beside them so just gonna (laughs) yeah no 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 i'm not i'm not (laughs) asking you to do that (laughs) i guess what's next are you are you happy where you are or do you want to be a cup champion crew chief I just want to win a lot of races and I want to be competitive. Yep. I, uh, I've been on a team once in a while when you go to the track and you're like, ah, man, if we run 20th, we're doing good. And that's not the type of team I want to be on. So if my skills fall short and I got to work for whatever, an ARCA team, light model team, whatever, I just want to be on the most competitive team there. And whether that's forward or backwards or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't have any pressure to need to move up or anything. Um, I like where we are. What's next is I've got a sweet bullet for Talladega and I want to go down there with Josh to win that thing. So people can say he's more than just a short track kid. Um, Speedway cars are one of the last few things you really get to love on that your hands can greatly affect how fast that car goes on the racetrack. And they've kind of been a passion of mine, especially when I was brand new crew chief, just because I knew I could directly affect how fast that car would go in qualifying. Um, so I always love speed at racing, even though a lot of times you bring them back on wreckers. That's what's really next. And from there, it is what it is. I I'll stay there as long as they let me be there. So uh, well, going back a few weeks, cause you mentioned you grew up a dirt kid. What were your thoughts when all of a sudden they're saying, Hey, Bristol's going to be covered yeah. in dirt. I was so excited and so bummed. We weren't there. I mean, it was nice to have an off weekend, but Man, I want to be there. I bet we'll go there next year, and I bet there'll be more dirt in the series because it certainly seemed well-received from the fans. Um, I think that big rain helped them out. I was trying to think, Does that, do you guys know of any other dirt track that has concrete underneath it? Not concrete, um, but there's a lot of them with asphalt, Devil's Bowl included. 
I guess I didn't think about well, when I was there, I don't think devil devil's ball was paved and they did paved and put dirt back on it. Right. Yeah. 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 So I just wasn't sure how that would affect, you know, 250 laps in a cup race and pull all the moisture out of it. But I hope we race there next year. My crew guys aren't that thrilled about it, but let's do it. Yeah. Do you put the old body on for those races? Or do you just... <laughs> They're all composite. They bend, flex yeah, yeah. and break. So, yeah. Um, so I wanted, you, you mentioned a little bit about having um, different, what's your dog's name? Uh, Hank. Hey, Hank. Um, <laughs> you mentioned about having nine different drivers your first year and yep. it was never the same driver week to week. I'm, I'm sure that most of it is money driven, but do you have any say on who drives that card? Like, do they, do they bring you in a room and say, Hey, what do you think of this guy? No, 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 I don't. I mean, they do ask my opinion on people, but it's never, it's not my choice for who's going to drive it. Right. Yeah. These things are expensive to operate. And, um, especially with, you know, how far out we build them and kind of the logistics of the sport. That's what's tough. And I'm glad everybody could survive through COVID because, you know, I would, I don't have exact quotes, but I know like this summer we'll be working on the funding portion for next year. So when stuff's locked down and, you know, the economy's not great, it's tough to get money out of people to keep guys. All your speed comes from the off season work. (laughs) So you need your guys at the shop then to get ready for next year. Um, but no, I've never been, they always ask my opinion, you know, what do you think of this kid? What do you think of this kid? What do you think of this guy? Um, but I don't think it's for whether or not they're going to drive the car. It's just for general opinions of how we can help them get better, or whatever it needs to be. Is there, is there one guy take, take your, your 2021 roster out of it. Um, is there one guy that you've really enjoyed working with? You know, you, you're like, man, I wish we had a full season together or something. Zane Smith. Really? If you could, if there was an equation that told you uh, like seat time in an asphalt car to success, I don't think there's anybody that holds a steering wheel that we, he doesn't come from money and he hadn't been in race cars much, super late models a little bit, like right to Arca, finished second. California kid, right? Yeah. 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 Um, right. Right. I, like late models a little bit, right to Arca, finished second to Sheldon Creed and then jumped in our car. We were going to tracks that him and I had never been in and running the top five, went to Iowa. I'd never been to Iowa. He'd never been to Iowa, ran fourth. Um, the most gracious kid. I, the first day we met each other, this is like a little California kid. I'm middle of nowhere, Vermont kid. And I remember we like pulled on Google Maps. He's like, this is my house. And it's like suburbs. And I like pulled up the old butt off road house. And I was like, this is I'm from. And he's like, whoa, what's all that? I'm like, those are fields. And we, <laughs> and we, he He's still like my little brother. Um, he was one of those kids that I remember standing in turns one and two at Phoenix. He'd never been to Phoenix. We went, took him there to the last race, ran fourth. He qualified second. And we, he came into the corner so fast. We thought he was just going to blow the wall down. And I don't know how he saved it. Not only saved it, you know, ran second. He was just one of those people who does pretty amazing things with race. I mean, he finished second in truck series points last year in his rookie year too. So I really enjoyed working with Zane um, and he's in the Chevy development program now. And certainly as everybody noticed in him in the truck. So maybe someday we'll get to work together again. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that answer surprised me, honestly, because he hasn't been around that long. Yeah. No, he, but uh, that's, I mean, you guys see it down there. You're like you, you see talent, you know, talent. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've worked with some real, I mean, I've been blessed. To, that's the one thing is I've worked with so many guys, but I've worked with a lot of talented guys, which is cool. And, and 
I also, it's tough. I'm a friendly guy and I become friends with these dudes and you know how talented all of them are and they just need shots. And that's what you're hoping. That's, that's, that's the burden I carry probably is I'm a pretty empathetic person and I become friends with these guys and I'm like, damn, you got four races. We got to show people something that hopefully leads to something more. And I'm pretty proud of the fact that even though they don't race for me anymore, Jeb Burton ran partial season for me. He's in a full-time ride this year. Daniel ran a partial season for me. He's in a full-time ride. Truex is in a full-time truck. Sane's in a full-time truck. Sheldon Creed's in a full-time truck. Brett Moffat's in both. Everybody that's driven for me, except for Regan, he's broadcasting, and Dale. But everybody else is full-time racing. So I always feel like if I wasn't winning, at least I'm helping those guys show their talents so they can get full t- the full-time rides they deserve. If only someone would give that Dale guy a shot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> can't catch a break tell us about your farm oh my farm uh it's great it's, uh, i bought an old abandoned farm it's like a barbed wire museum it's about uh 45 minutes east of charlotte um i actually lived out there uh for a long time i just one time when i was in college i drove east of charlotte to go to the beach and i came to this union county and i was like holy cow this thing looks like addison county i was like if i'm gonna stay and work in racing i'm gonna need to live out here to stay sane so, uh, after college, I bought a house in five acres out there and became part of the a small town community. Uh, Olive Branch is a dot on a map. It's literally a crossroads. It makes Shoreham and Bridport look huge. Um, and I stuck around in that little farming community, knowing that like I was only going to be able to afford land if I was in with the neighbors, right? Most land gets sold on the corner store or church steps. And uh, after eight years, somebody was like, finally, like, Hey, that over there is not really for sale, but I bet it's for sale. And um was able to buy it. And uh all the barns have been abandoned for about 30 years. The pastures have been kept up. And uh some friends of mine already had cows there. So I was able to walk into a great situation. I could buy this farm, earn some rental income for the cows, and then build my herd of cows as well. And they kind of they're great. Well, I don't know if we want to call it partners or what, but they have cows there. I own part of the cows. They manage the cows and I'm at the racetrack. And when I'm at the farm, I'm day labor. So I guess it is a partnership. Um, it's got an old house and small barns that we're fixing up. Um, it's a cool little spot. It looks like you could plop it down and shore them and never know, never know it was any different. So how does the, uh, how does your girlfriend feel about the farming lifestyle? Well, she's from a big grain farming operation in Illinois. So I don't think she realized how much, how cool cows could be. Um, but she fell in love with them pretty quick. We got like 35 baby calves out there right now oh bouncing around. And um, our little dog, Hank, that you just heard bark, he's an Australian shepherd poodle mix. And he thinks he likes cows too. And it's just kind of our, our special place. Um, she's on the Dale Jr. download. So she lives a pretty, you know, intense lifestyle of being in racing. And I think I think the farm and that lifestyle probably you know slows her down as well she worked in drag racing for seven years so she's done the touring all around the country yeah you know that that grind yeah yeah it's funny and we now, have uh here justin got to see it a week ago i live in colchester right in the town <laughs> oh, yeah. and yeah our we have backyard and the fence and there's houses all behind us in one of these houses a couple months ago all of a sudden they have a cow in the backyard <laughs> right in Colchester. This door is suburban stays, though. This it, is this yeah. is like, you know, this isn't Addison County. This is, you know, 
Chittenden County where the, the, yeah, there are no you know, trees in the- per square mile is red on the map. You know, there's a lot of people there. Yeah. And they just had the, the door stays open for the garage. That's where the cow goes. Then during the day, it's just out in the backyard roaming around. Oh, only in Vermont. I yeah. saw, I man, it wasn't a month ago and I had to text Anthony and ask whose cows they were. I saw, I want to say it was on TikTok or something. There was a bunch of, of Holsteins running on the street. And I was like, holy yeah. cow, that's Middlebury. And yeah, that's Middlebury. Main Street. Yep. Yep. I was, she showed it to me and I was like, this is great. I was like, that's my hometown. I'm so yeah. proud of that. <laughs> that was, that was last year, right? Right when COVID hit, I think. Yep. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> tell me about, uh, there's a business that's on the side of Anthony's car that I can never pronounce as the, as the announcer. Okmulgee. Okmulgee. I always want to say Okmulgee. Yep. So Okmulgee is the name of my family dairy farm in Virginia. There's an Okmulgee, Oklahoma. My family came back to Virginia from the Dust Bowl and brought that name back. Evidently, they added an A in there somewhere. Um, That was early 1900s. So when I, before I was a traveling race engineer at Hendrick, I was a design engineer designing pieces and parts. And I'm pretty outdoorsy, hunt, fish, snowboard, ski, um, and I was designing just these aluminum racks for the inside of my garage to keep my, you know, you spend 500 bucks on a snowboard. You don't want to get beat up. So I, you know, can't leave well enough alone, decided I need to start a business. My little brother had just come out of um, architecture school. He helped me run the business and we designed all these cool racks. Uh, we had the business open until last summer, actually. So Ant will have a new business on the side. He'll have my farm on the side of the car this year, right. Ridge, Ridge Land and Cattle. But um yeah, it was a fun little passion project. It was my dipping my me dipping my toe into the business world. I had a lot of fun building the business. Uh, we ran everything mobile, so all my products were in a fulfillment center. So if I when I was traveling, then you know if you made an order, the fulfillment saw you order on my website. The fulfillment center would pull it, package it, ship it. It was all automated. Everything all the business books said and everybody told me was right. If you think it's going to take you eight hours, it'll take you sixteen. It'll be the hardest thing you do. But I made it survive for five or six years, uh, worked with my little brother on it. At the beginning, we were, you know, admittedly using it as a tax write-off to go on cool snowboard trips and hike and take pictures. But then it really turned into something, um, I guess. You know, I had Casey, we had bikes on Casey Kane's garage walls and Dale Jr.'s garage walls and kind of took off from there. Uh, and eventually, I became a crew chief and my little brother has a great job now and we you know, we let go of the company. We did, we did what we want to do with it. We got it back in the black and moved on to other things, but it was just a fun little passion project that I had. And it was really cool to see my business on the side of my best, my best buddy's car back up in my hometown. So, so you're telling me I don't have to struggle with that word anymore. Nope. Okay. So when I lived in Vermont, our apple orchard was Ridgeview orchards. And then we were Ridgeview cattle company. So when I bought my farm, I named it Ridgeview land and cattle. So that'll be on the side of Ant's car now. He just handed me his paperwork a couple of days ago and I typed it in on the roster and I was like, that's how I noticed that it wasn't there. And I was like, yep. okay, but that's you. All right. That's Good. me. Good to know. A couple quick hitters before we uh, let you go. First off, what is the one vehicle that you've owned that you wish you still had today? Ooh, my first truck. My dad let me buy it when I was 12. It's 91 F-150. By the time I turned 16, was lifted six inches, 35 inch tires, roll bar welded to the frame, push bar welded on the front. I could watch my gas gauge go down as I climbed the hill, going up by the golf course in Middlebury. 
Yeah, had a lot of fun in that truck. The kid that owns Monument Farms now wrecked it. I want that truck back, Ben. Oh. Uh, our second question is always, what's the dumbest thing you've done in a race car? But um, I don't know if you've got a story in a race car. What's the dumbest thing you've done in a, with a race car, I guess? I don't have any. That's not going to be a quick hitter. I'd have to think back. I've done a lot of dumb things <laughs> with a race car. Probably. Give us something dumb that you've done with a motor then. <laughs> Well, even that's a loaded question because we have motor guys. Um, no, no, no. I mean four-wheelers and, and snowmobiles and just banging around. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I went I, – I, I hit a deer one time really hard with an Articat 500 in the Apple Ooh. Orchard that running – me, Travis, and Anthony running way too fast at night between Apple Rose and he couldn't stop. You know, probably that. We would ride, we would ride our four-wheelers every night from Bridport to Shoreham and over the hill – we just park our trucks and ride four wheelers all hours of the night. We did a lot of dumb stuff. So yeah, sorry. That's probably not a great answer, but no, not a race car driver either. How'd you make up? How'd you make out of that? Uh, luckily, like well, I shouldn't say luckily, I do know like my knees got caught under the handlebars. So I took it pretty much full groin to the ignition system and laid under the apple trees and puked for a while. And they piled me back on and drew, rode home. Spectacular. And this last one, I feel like we might know the answer based on how our talk has gone today. But if you're on a uh, long road trip to a racetrack, who do you want riding shotgun with you for the drive? I want my team. Yeah, I want I want my guys sitting beside me. We're a small, really tight-knit group of guys. And if I'm going to drive to the racetrack, I want my team with me. Listen, congratulations. Um, and it's good to see a, a Green Mountain boy doing something down there. Absolutely. There's a lot of them down there, but it's nice yeah. to see one in victory lane. I never realized that. I mean, Rick Pigeon, Dave Rogers, I, the Nate Bellows, the list goes on. Um, My man, a, Keith Fortier. Yeah, there's a ton of people. Yeah. I, there's, le- there's, there's not very many people from North Carolina in NASCAR, as many as there is other states. But mm. I appreciate it. Um, I'll keep in touch and let you guys know when I'm up there. I'd love to love to come see you, come to the bowl. You switch the race, it's a Saturday, so I'm going to have to figure that one out. But Yeah. Uh, Get a helicopter. <laughs> just borrow one. Yeah, why not? Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch and I'll come see you guys. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you once again to Taylor for giving us his time and make sure to check him out on the socials. Check out his profile and junior motorsports really fascinating guy and a smart guy also really good at fishing apparently yeah i creeped him on facebook a little bit and a very snazzy dresser it seems like when he wants to be yeah dude cleans up i can't you kind of have to have that image right i would think at this point i mean it's not greasy rags and jeans and flannel shirts anymore it's you know Though he says he still appreciates those. So. Well, sure. When he's off camera. Yeah. On camera. We got like the bright white glass frames. He had like the professional lighting behind yeah. the, behind the camera. There's a, there's a, there's a tinge of racer hipster chic going on in there. It's a good way to put it. Fine with that. I'm yeah. fine with that. But seriously, he's a renaissance, though, he's a renaissance man of NASCAR. Yes. And yeah. Thank you to him for his time. He didn't have to do it. And it gives us a chance to continue to kind of broaden who we talk to and what we talk about. And yeah, that's but, something that 
we've talked about since this started was not just sticking to one thing that maybe everyone wants to hear from us. It's as much about what we want it to be. Yeah, totally. And what we want to hear and who we want to talk to. And that sounds really selfish. And <laughs> now that you put now it that I'm way. listening to it that way is we, <laughs> us, us, us. And, and you got, you all, our listeners are, we very much value your opinion. And we've gotten some guests based on Do your we? opinion. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, this is our opportunity to do what the hell we want to do. <laughs> no handcuffs from any radio stations or. The man doesn't get us down. Yeah. yeah. Listen, go, going back to what you're saying that Taylor Moyer did not have to give us his time. I think he wanted to. And again, I creeped his, his Facebook a little bit, but he, he was been sharing our posts and stuff for the last several days. And um, like, he's really, I think really grateful that we reached out to him. And he said in one of his posts that this is the first time he'd ever been asked about anything other than the race car he's working on. Um, And that he got to talk about his roots and talk about where he's from and share some stories of growing up at Bear Ridge and Canaan and devil's bowl and thunder road. And you know what his dad was doing and all that stuff. Like that's why we're doing the show. You know, and and again, it comes back to what you're saying, where it's this is what we want to hear, um, you and me, not specifically our listeners. Um, although we think you do want to hear this stuff, but this is the story. These are the stories that that Tom and Justin want to hear, and we just happen to put it out for everybody else to listen to. So um, it was cool that Taylor got that outlet, and um, and I think we're pretty proud that we were the ones to give it to him. And who knows? Maybe we'll be able to catch up to him down the road with you know following more success hopefully for him yeah and hopefully more success for us i would like to see or, or i guess here um him on the dale jr download you know i don't i don't know if you listen to that tom but i i try to catch it when i can and um i don't know the stuff that we learned about taylor you give him two hours with dale jr which by the way this show is kind of that show light isn't it are we we're kind of speaking of which I feel like yeah. that would make sense and that would sound great as would Dale Jr. on Uncommon Deeds. Hey, hint, hint. One's probably more viable <laughs> to happen than the other, but you mean him being on this show, right? That's the one that, you're talking Maybe that's it. Yeah. Maybe so that's sure. more likely than him yeah. getting his, his employee on his own. Right. <laughs> No, I, I no. <laughs> Wishful thinking, but I think a lot of people probably enjoyed hearing that. You know, he is Dale Jr. is this mythical person to a lot of people, and to hear firsthand, like it's the most like down to earth and super Dude, chill. I was just not a junior fan at all during his driving days until like I think. The race that did it for me. Were you jealous you couldn't have blonde highlights? Totally, because I didn't even have any hair at that point. But the race that did it for me with, with Junior was the 2014, I think, Daytona 500 that he won. I was the only person 
around that was even remotely interested in the race, whatever was going on that day. So I went to Buffalo Wild Wings and sat by myself at the bar and watched the race. And there was one other, like not, not one other person interested. There was one other person in the restaurant at the time. And so I just was talking to my buddies on Twitter and stuff and watching the race and junior won it. And I was like, damn it. I'm a junior fan now, I guess. I, I don't know. And I didn't really cheer for him that much, but once he started doing the podcast stuff and his other stuff, I really kind of, I guess, get to as well as you can get to know one of these guys. I got to know him a little bit better and I think he's cool. And, um, and it makes sense that Taylor would fit into that mold. Um, and I know Matthew Dillner pretty well, who's on the, the podcast and he's a totally chill down to earth guy. So it, it, it's all, it makes sense. It seems like it's a big kind of family. It's pretty cool. And then like we talked about, I think it was during the podcast. It might've been before we hit record, but just the amount of Vermonters you see now oh, at yeah. that level. Yeah. You know, Dave Rogers uh, was Kyle Bush's right hand man and still is for Joe Gibbs. Um, I believe he used to, he always set things up with Joey LeCare to do like snow machines. He would bring the team down with all his guys. He'd bring them down to Vermont and they'd go snow machining. And But like, the, I mean, there's way more and, and we love Keith Fortier and we've heard stories of Keith Fortier on the show. Um, but he's been down there for 18, 17, 18 years now, you know, um, it's one of those weird, wild. we keep finding all these weird connections and, Keith's lovely wife I went to high school with. Yep. Yeah. And everybody knows Ellen. Yep. We're all we're all Ellen fans. Who gave me my blonde highlights in high school. And if I could go back in time, I would have her do it at least one time. I'd get some blonde highlights at Sheer Elegance. It's never too late. <laughs> I think it's too late at this point. Maybe some blonde beard highlights. Ooh. Yeah, Just grow it out a little bit. Do you frost this beard for me? Now, as you people are listening to this, what the hell? A little behind the curtain. This is one of those nights where Justin and I hopped on the Zoom and we talked for about an hour before we started recording the open for today's episode. And both close. of our wives came in the room and like, you haven't started yet. <laughs> so we're uh, you're getting a loopier, yeah. loopier version here at this point of the evening. <laughs> we vented Wrestling. our weekly frustrations with each other wrestling toddlers and just yeah, yeah it's a thing yeah this is our therapy talked about stupid people on facebook and There's a lot of them and so much more yeah that is a different podcast and it freaking snowed three make. inches today what the hell yeah this is uh wednesday this podcast comes out friday so if you're listening wednesday to this right today now. we recorded this on wednesday yeah. So snow all day. Dumb. Nothing says it's racing right around the corner like three inches of fresh powder. That's all I got to say about that. Yeah. yeah. So as for <laughs> us for today, make sure to subscribe, five-star review, all that good stuff with the podcast. Follow us on all the socials, Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook Uncommon Deeds podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. Yeah. 
And thank you all for tuning in and listening. You have been enjoying Uncommon Deeds.